All right. Um, Intro. <laughs> Hey, it's lit. Hey guys, it's Rachel Redfield. I'm here with MedLit Review. I'm also here with Doctors Ben Jones. <laughs> like, which one am I going to? You did so good. Who does she like is more? Who does she like Benson more? Jones Jr. or is it Ben Jones? It's Ben Jones. I go by my middle name. Ben or Sean Dickton. Yes. I don't have a fake first name. I don't tell people or a secret middle name. That's actually my first name. And I oop. And I oop. <laughs> is that your? Middle I don't name? speak millennial. You don't speak Jasmine Masters. I don't know what well. that is. <laughs> We'll talk about that another time. Can you teach me this podcast? Teach me, teach me pop culture, learn. Ben. Ben, we'll teach include me. that in the show notes mm. for our listeners. <laughs> teach me supplemental. Pop is reading. this a is this a RuPaul's Drag this Race is, thing? This is a Drag Race alum. I knew it. <laughs> I love that. All I right, might, I ben, might include that. <laughs> ben is presenting the case and article today. We're excited. All right. Uh, so this is a trial uh, that was recently in uh, the New England Journal on the topic of major depression. So Ooh, very uh, interesting. Sean and Rachel, we have a lot of medical treatments for um, depression, mm-hmm. but only about 60% of patients have a response to the currently available therapies. So we're talking about like 40% of people who are really struggling to get relief from uh, depression. And um, one of the biggest downsides to the common therapies is the time it takes for these treatments to work. So uh, SSRIs being first line therapy, uh, taking about like four weeks to get a true effect. And for people who are suffering from depression, that's a long time. Yeah. Wow. I, re- I think I remember a, a USMLE step question where they try to trick me and they say someone comes back to the office after two weeks of starting an SSRI and all the answers are like not correct. They're like, all like switch this, do this, increase, increase the, the dose. dose. Right. Right. And that's just like, it's a shame because the, you know, depression is just as anyone who's suffered from depression knows, it's just not fun. Yeah. And a month, I mean, by the time these patients a- are able to finally get into a clinic, see a provider, I mean, that's a huge hurdle in general. And then for some, for us to have to look at the patient and say, you know, you'll get better. Maybe. Right. <laughs> Hang in there. It'll get better with this medicine that I'm giving you. It's just, it, it doesn't seem great. It's not, it's not like a lot of the other medicines we have. You know, I, I have the flu. I would like to take a medicine for the flu. Oh, look, I am better from the flu now. It's like one of those things where, you know, it's, it's just kind of against the, um, common perception of medicines. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it promotes the stigma that follows with a lot of mental health disease and the fact that there's not a treatment that one receives that helps in a really effective time frame, you know, so someone has to almost live with this for a time period as we work on it, as opposed to treating it like another illness, treating it like diabetes, treating it like uh, an an infection, et cetera. Sure. Great. I imagine to go along with that, Sean, that the stigma, you know, for some of these patients, just getting them on a medication is a huge hurdle and then for them to not feel anything after you know a few weeks how disappointing and frustrating that must be certainly 
Certainly. So uh, let's dive into a case. So uh, let's say we have a 28-year-old man who's coming into your clinic for the first visit to establish care. Uh, he's had some trouble sleeping and a depressed mood, some increased eating and lack of interest in things he used to like to do. He really used to like to uh, play basketball with his friends, but he's really just not into that anymore. He really just doesn't want to. And when you kind of ask him about it, he's just like, yeah, I'm just not really into it anymore. Um, so he had actually started uh, some cognitive behavioral therapy uh, with his previous provider and, and started taking citalopram for the last year, but really didn't change a lot of the symptoms. He's really feeling about the same as he had been. And he wanted to talk to you about some other options that are newer and are faster acting because he's just like, I, I just really want relief. Uh, so how would you guys approach this case? What, what do you think about um, his presentation? So it sounds like he, you know, when I think about someone coming to me with major depression i i'm i'm i hate that i'm going back to us usmle and all these other criteria that i memorize as a med student going through first aid but i remember the having the symptoms i remember siga caps was my mnemonic that i remembered and i remember having these symptoms almost persistently for two weeks i don't know why that time frame sticks in my head uh, and just sort of looking uh, or or and just listening to the case that you're presenting, it sounds like he checks a lot of those boxes. Uh, a previous clinician had a high enough suspicion to start him on an antidepressant. He sounds depressed, and uh, if his medicine isn't working, you know he warrants a change right now. Um, and what that change is, I'm sure we're going to get into. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, if he came to my clinic, I would probably just pick... I mean, he's on an SSRI. I'd probably just switch him over to an SNRI, not mm -hmm. for any good reason. It's just, you know, once you've, you, you haven't gotten benefit from one, maybe I could try another SSRI, but I would be concerned enough to want to, I would be concerned enough to want to switch classes and also make sure that the patient has close follow-up with me is seeing a psychologist at the same time. And because I'm not a psychiatrist, I would even start looking for help with this. If I, you know, someone's been struggling with this for over a year. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And this, so the definition for treatment resistant depression is uh, a little bit vague, but it's basically people that don't respond to medical therapy, like an appropriate course within a certain time frame. I would say that a year would certainly be a, a um, an appropriate time frame. Um, to try to identify a response. And major depression has actually gotten a lot of press recently with some newer therapies uh, like uh, esketamine, uh, which is going to be a, a huge game-changing medicine for treatment-resistant depression. Uh, it, it's got to make it into the mainstream more. The strict monitoring program is going to inhibit it a little bit. Um, but it's, you know, for these medicines that are potentially abusable, it's really important to have a lot of close monitoring for them. So um, this, the SAGE 217 trial talks about um, a newer agent. Um, it's by uh, Gundos Bruce and colleagues out of uh, UMass. Uh, they're hoping to show us that SAGE-217 is, is an alternative agent, uh, and this is a phase two trial, and I want to take a step back and review some of the different types of trials for us. Rachel, can you take us through those phases? Ooh, okay. Well, so when I think back, I'm terrible at memorizing, um, so I try and keep it simple. I think the phases um, are most easily memorized if you just remember one word, um, but I'll expand a little bit. So phase one, the word you should think of is safety. So 
that's easy to remember. Uh, you know, every drug that goes on the market, we, we got to make sure it's safe. So there's not a lot of patients that they try this uh, medication on. And again, they're just trying to make sure that this medication is safe. So phase one, safety. Phase two, um, it's mainly to make sure that the medication is efficacious. So efficacy is that word. Um, it requires a control group because um, you have to compare. But again, this is it's a small sample size um, and they just want to make sure that the medication is better or at least not inferior to the standard of care. Um, phase three, the word for that would be approval. So now it's basically taking phase two, but making this a lot bigger. So you have bigger groups, you are with the bigger groups, you're able to tell like, are there any obvious side effect profiles to these medications? And then again, we want to see if the medication on the market in the phase three trial is better, or at least again, not inferior to the, the standard of therapy. And at the end of phase three, whoever has made this medication can request FDA approval um, to put the drug on the market. And then phase four is the exciting. That's when you can monitor the drug. So, you know, you're trying to figure out, is this, is this medication better for certain disease processes than other medications? What is the cost? Is it good for long-term? What's the timeline for use? Are there certain diseases where you just shouldn't be using this medication? So again, phase four is monitoring. You want to see long-term how this medication does, but it is FDA approved by this point. So safety, efficacy, approval, monitoring. Yes. So seem. Let's say it all together. S- safety. Safety. Efficacy, Efficacy, approval, approval monitoring. monitoring. Is it, is it seam? Seam. 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 I like that. And to make a seamless transition <laughs> into Whoa, our next part. That was good. Grown. Um, Ew. This, this, this is, is a. This is a. Does it actually work? Trial. This is an efficacy trial. Um, but thanks for going through that, Rachel. That was that was really helpful. Um, it's a phase two trial. Right. Nice. <laughs> Just really Strong work. And so, you know, as you might have guessed for a, a therapy getting published in the New England Journal, it, it worked for the endpoints identified, but let's go into the deets a little bit. So what the heck is SAGE and how does it relate to depression? This is a trial about spices. Yes. Uh, more than a seasoning plant mm. in pill form, uh, SAGE is 217 is an oral synthetic neurosteroid based on the physiologic neurosteroid allopregnenolone. So for those of us who don't remember neuroscience, including myself, uh, allopregnenolone is a positive allosteric modulator of the synaptic and presynaptic GABA aminobutyric acid or GABA type A receptors that allow for normal inhibition of the neuron. So basically they allow GABA to work. Um, so the goal, like what they, what these researchers have found or what previous studies have found is that um, depression over the long term can actually lower the levels of allopregnenolone and close the GABA-A receptors. So these current uh, antidepressants, the current, sorry, to go back, the current antidepressants that we have, SSRIs, SNRIs, um, can actually allow these receptors to open, uh, but it's not their primary mechanism of, of action uh, because they're serotonin reuptake inhibitors and they, has as a secondary effect, have this effect on the, the GABA-A receptors. 
So one hypothesis about depression is that there are defects in the GABA receptors. So they've done autopsies on patients who died by suicide. They've checked CSF fluid. They've looked at cortical brain tissue. And if so, the question is, if we give allopregnenolone or something like it, can we treat depression? So okay. GABA is good. In depression, can be the, the GABA receptors need to work. Okay. Um, and so can we help them work better? Okay. And thus treat depression. Okay. And now they have come up with a steroid that can positively affect GABA. Correct. And, good... it, and this is specifically a neurosteroid. So it's not, they have not seen the classic corticosteroid effect or mineralocorticoid effect with this agent, but they haven't done long-term studies yet. We'll get into all of that. Yeah, because we're just in phase two. Right, exactly. We are only trying to figure out if this thing even works. Efficacy. <laughs> Same. Exactly. This is a food, a food, food ordering service. <laughs> That's seamless. Um, so uh, to go in some, uh, into some of the designs, so 89 people uh, from the U.S. and eight sites got either 30 milligrams of placebo or 30 milligrams of SAGE 217. Um these people notably did not have treatment-resistant depression. So hmm. these were people who either had been on some other SSRI or had uh, been diagnosed with depression, but they were just part of the trial. Um, and they, they screened a number of people. I don't have the exact numbers. Um, but they were allowed, so they were allowed to have um, antipsychotics or other antidepressants. Uh, they could reduce the dose of SAGE or the placebo to 20 milligrams if there were side effects. And after 20 milligrams, if they still wanted to withdraw, they were allowed to do so, uh, either from placebo or uh, the SAGE group. Cool. Uh, so the primary metric they used is the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale or the HAMD score. Um, and this is a physician rated form assessing patients for symptoms uh, of like depressed mood, anxiety, insomnia, etc. There's some pretty clear criteria on it, but it is there is some a little bit of subjectivity uh, built into the scale. They'll say like for uh, the level of psychosis, it's like, are you having auditory hallucinations? Are you like... Um, is this an interview tool? So the physicians would ask the patients and then record their responses? Yes, this is an interview tool. Uh, this is administered by the, the physician and, you know, checking exactly where um, the, the patient falls. So it's out of, uh, I think, 56 points, 56 being uh, severe, uh, okay. zero being no depression. Um, so they were basically looking at the change in the HAMD score from baseline to day 15. That was how high, how powered the study was. They had secondary endpoints looking at days two through eight daily, then day um, 21, 28, 35, and 42. But and then they, 15 is half the time that it takes if that's two weeks for an SSRI to theoretically become efficacious. Exactly. And so because these authors were pretty convinced that this uh, medication worked faster than other um, antidepressants. See, that take that segue. How about them apples? <laughs> oh, they're pretty confident. I like it. They are confident. But they also... So it, one limitation is that it wasn't powered for some of those later time points. But we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later. So... Um, for the, statist the statistical analysis, they used an intention-to-treat principle. 
Now, Sean, there are two different types of uh, analysis that you can do related to subject organization, intention to treat and per protocol. Can you remind us uh, the difference between the two? Oh, God. That would be a distinct pleasure. Mm-hmm. No, when I, okay, so when I think of, I think of them in, in the order that, be, that is most intuitive to me. So when I think of a per protocol analysis, I think of getting a bunch of uh, a patients or, or a group of people together, randomizing them, administering, administering some intervention, and then uh, either doing placebo or standard of care, uh, and then following patients uh, as they, you know, over a predetermined time period. And then at the very end, you know, seeing who received the placebo, seeing who received our intervention, uh, and just comparing those two groups. Uh, because you really want to find out what is the intervention of interest actually doing. Uh, so if someone crosses over, for example, which I think is the big caveat, it undermines your study uh, and you uh, really want to factor that in, into account. You want to make sure that people who actually received your intervention are being compared to people who actually did not receive your, uh, did actually did not receive the intervention. Right. It's pretty intuitive. Right. Um, but there's caveats in there because if you're sort of allowing this crossover and allow and analyzing people from this sort of, you know, retrospective backwards uh, effect, uh, you've undone what you've so painstakingly tried to do at the get-go when you initially enrolled them, and that's the randomization, which is sort of the crux of us going through all these randomized right. control trials. Exactly. It is the R in the randomized control trial. <laughs> you know, because when people do crossover, you know, it's it's almost, uh, it, well, it's random, but I didn't want to use random. It's it, When people cross over, there's no guarantee that it's going to be in the same even distribution that you randomized them in the beginning. So that, you know, it's a it's a pretty devious way of introducing bias into what would otherwise be a well-organized study. Exactly. And so just to um, close the loop on intention to treat. So what is uh, what is intention to treat? So intention to treat, I think of, is the master statistician's way of solving this problem. So when you randomize your patients, you acknowledge that crossover may happen. People who are not in your intervention group, uh, um, in, the, in this placebo group, uh, may cross over and receive your intervention uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but uh, you say, I, it doesn't matter. I'm going to analyze people uh, as they were originally um, uh, randomized. Mm-hmm. So um, the downside to that is that if someone from the placebo group crosses over and gets your intervention of interest, um, that would almost be counted against you because you're counting that patient as someone who did not get your intervention. And if your intervention does have a benefit, it's going to look like someone who is now being analyzed in that placebo group did better. So when you're comparing intervention to placebo, they'll say, oh, this person who was in the placebo group did just as good as the person in the intervention group, thus sort of weakening the benefit you would see with your intervention. Does that make sense? Yes. It's... um I think Rachel has a question, though. Hit me. So I, I'm a little bit confused. I'm, I'm always been very bad at this. Why don't they just get rid of the patients who switch groups? Is it because they just don't start off with enough patients? So I think that's part of it. I think they really want to be sure that they, they've done the painstaking work of screening these people and finding them eligible for, for the criteria. And But you can, in theory... Uh, if you were to do both the intention to treat and per protocol analysis, you can get some valuable data either way. Um, but you know, saying it's like as assigned is what I think of as intention to treat. Um, and then per protocol is where they end up, mm-hmm. um, to like kind of simplify it. But you want to make sure that you're actually measuring the treatment effects 
Um, so you have to, you kind of want both to be perfectly honest, yeah. but sometimes they're just not powered to do both. So if you have, let's say people drop it, if people don't finish the trial, then you can't do a pro per protocol analysis because you're missing data. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where the limitation, one of the limitations of per protocol analysis with intended to treat, you just say like you were assigned here and by golly, we're going to analyze it. Um, okay. And how would a patient, so I guess it's easy for me to think of a patient who starts with the actual medication mm -hmm. and decides, eh, I don't really like taking a pill. So ends up becoming almost like a placebo. They, in the intention to treat, they would just say, you're still, we're still going to pretend like you right. got the full treatment. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, then, then you say, oh, well their HAMD score didn't change. Was our drug not? effective yeah and so that's that's the big issue uh, with intention to treat alone it's you know it can it can in theory minimize the effect interesting yeah for the gold standard of our medical knowledge there are a lot of caveats that come with these randomized <laughs> absolutely. trials absolutely uh, there's so many uh, nuances and it's complicated very complicated it's almost like there needs to be some sort of podcast to discuss it <laughs> self-plug filling a niche <laughs> Okay, well, right. thanks well, for... thanks. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks for going through those uh, different methods, Sean. Um, uh, in terms of statistics and the uh, the outcomes, they use the least the mean square difference between the HAMD and other depression scales. So, uh, just Ben, to... I know what a mean is. <laughs> yeah, what the hell does a least mean? <laughs> like the this... least <laughs> mean square difference. Yeah, so mean I... is you average things. <laughs> so, right. And it's essentially a, mean, uh, a way of calculating the treatment's effects at each center and then the mean of those treatments altogether and then the treatment effect, then, then the difference. So let's say you have uh, 10 measurements at one center, five measurements at another center. Um, so what you need to do is take the, the mean of those 10 measurements, the mean of the five measurements, uh, average those together, because that way you're not um, overestimating the effect from the, the center that had 10 measurements, and then you're taking the difference together. So it basically prohibits um, a large change just on the basis of uh, additional measurements, if that ma makes sense. I, I should say not a large change, a large effect on the basis of other measurements. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I ever actually appreciate that when they, uh, when when a researcher uh, puts that forth. So it's easy to look at the percentages and compare the percentages. And I, it's so tempting just to look at P intervals and say, these numbers are significantly different, but there's so much that goes into it. <laughs> so much. Absolutely. You can get your master's in statistics, <laughs> PhD in statistics. I need a friend in statistics. <laughs> don't we all? Don't, uh, don't we all indeed. Um, so just going into the results a little bit. So uh, there were about 45 patients in each group. Um, the biggest differences in the groups were that the there were um, the treatment group was older in general. So uh, age 49 compared to age 38, there were fewer women in the treatment tr group. There were 56% uh, women versus 68% uh, and more black people in the treatment group. 80% uh, uh, were in the treatment group versus 64% um, uh, in, in the SAGE group. So it, I'm sorry, in the uh, placebo group. So, so they were more, they were older, more male, and more black people. Correct. 
Correct. And the treatment group. Correct. So the treatment, so the group of patients with depression receiving this novel drug. Correct. Got it. Bingo. Um, so the baseline HAMD scores, which is that depression scale, uh, were similar. So this is uh, 25 out of uh, 56, roughly. Um, and that corresponds with moderate to severe depression um, for um, those uh, looking to interpret that score. So the higher the score, the worse depression? Correct. But uh, I believe the cutoff um, is around 23 for uh, moderate to severe depression. Okay. So um, say that one more time on day 15. So uh, this was, uh, so the baseline scores were around 25. And then on day 15, the baseline decrease of the HAMD score was minus 17, plus or minus one in the SAGE group, and minus 10, plus or minus one in the placebo group. Okay, so um, seven point difference in decrease. Correct. With more decrease in the treatment group. Correct. And this was statistically significant. Um Wow. And they did some other stats. Only in 15 days. Ben, what do you think about that minus 10 point decrease in the placebo group? I find I found that fascinating. And, and I, when we go into some of the other effects, like the safety effects, they actually had a lot of people drop out of the placebo group thinking that they had side effects, which I just find Ooh. so fascinating. Very interesting. Um, because it... it, um, it it makes a lot of the depression treatment really difficult to interpret because it's like, we literally gave you a pill that does nothing. And yet yeah. <laughs> you are still having GI complaints. You're still having headaches. And you know, the, it's almost, I would wonder how they counseled the patients on this medication and what they would uh, expect to uh, experience because you know, you can imagine taking a placebo and being like, Oh my gosh, I have a headache now. Right. But you really, you know, there's no physiologic way that's possible. So it really speaks to like the psychosomatic um, axis. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Depression really is compl a complicated disease. It's very, very complicated. But what do we think about these um, these differences? I mean, Sean, we already talked a little bit about the placebo effect already causing a decrease. Uh, so but the fact that we did this as an intention to treat analysis makes me think that if anything, treatment effect would potentially be underestimated. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, it goes to support that perhaps this difference is real. Um, the fact that the placebo group had, did have a, um, did have a decrease. The, the first thing that pops into my head is, you know, perhaps there's some structure of the trial that contributed to, you know, providing these people with regular follow-up with a psychiatrist mm -hmm. or with a clinician in and of itself, uh, in the absence of any medication changes really did provide some benefit to depression. And we know that there is a benefit to following regularly with a clinician or seeing a therapist. Yeah. So remind me, did they, when they did the ham scores on days two to eight, um, and then day 15 is kind of what I remember. Do you, did they do it on the phone or was this in person? So those are in person. Wow. Um, so the, the patient is coming in every day to see a provider mm -hmm and at least do the HAMD score. That's my understanding, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i confirm that for you, but um, it was really an in-person visit for those first, um, the, the day after, and uh, those the, the subsequent uh, week after they started. Yeah, so Sean, I kind of agree with you. Maybe this is, maybe the seeing that 10 point decrease is based on seeing someone getting out in the community. I mean, depression is a lot more complicated than just seeing another human every day, but it is very interesting that maybe that maybe they 
had felt more connected to whoever was doing the HamD score? Were they seeing the same person every time? Really fascinating. Yeah, wow. Rachel, to answer your question about the follow-up timing. So subjects remained as inpatients during the first seven days of each study period and per the investigator's judgment thereafter through day 15 of receiving the drug. Wow. That is really interesting. So more than just going home and coming back, they were they were in the hospital being monitored. Wow. And these patients, again, were, had moderate depression uh, in the, at the moderate beginning. Moderate to severe the, depression, Moderate yes. to severe. I wonder if they would have been hospitalized otherwise or... Great question, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I think it would uh, be it may be a little bit provider dependent. Yeah. Um, but I wonder a little bit too about the observation effect here that like these patients are being watched, and if they're on a placebo or if they're on a treatment drug, they don't care. All they want to say is that I'm feeling better to please the people that are watching them in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and also, are they in a room by themselves? Are they in, I mean, when I have done psychiatry in a psychiatry treatment area, you know, there people are together mm -hmm. and that would seem to make a huge difference. Yeah, I think I I think when I first read this trial, I I didn't appreciate how um, how closely the initial uh, first few days were monitored, um, and you know they could in theory have been uh, inpatient through 15 days for the entire treatment effect of the drug. Wow. So uh, you know it depends on uh, what the um, investigator's judgment was, but I, I just find that also really interesting in terms of the uh, ways to interpret these results. Yeah, um, I wonder if other depression trials out there typically have patients inpatient. You know, is that... I, I don't know that there are a lot of depression trials out <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, probably I think I not. Can, there's... there. Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to pretend. There's Katie, and then I think there's a Sadie about an comparing antipsychotics, and then one comparing SSRIs. Ben is going to look things up while I say this incorrectly. Uh, so there's the, um, let's see, a couple of, I'm trying to see the um, true treatment effects. The tiered approach for depression is the STAR-D trial. STAR-D, that's uh, it. The sequenced, uh, sequenced treatment alternatives to relieve depression trial, uh, which we are not doing today, but um, <laughs> that is one uh, major depression trial. Um, there was another one with light therapy. Um versus sertraline wow very i and i'm also just thinking like the type of patient that would be willing to be hospitalized for a trial that's potentially a placebo you know i just think yeah. i mean trials in general are very fascinating the type of people who are willing to go into it um but like you had said at the beginning these were not necessarily patients who were refractory to other treatments so and and i'm sure that that had to be disclosed that right, they could right. go home and be on standard of care and live their life. Right. right. Absolutely. Uh, I want to move on a little bit and talk about uh, some uh, of the safety data, always important. So um, the, there were two patients that in the SAGE uh, 217 group that met discontinuation criteria. One was nausea, dizziness, and headache. Um, and the other had um, increased alkaline phosphatase, um, 
aminotransaminases, and a GGT that all return to baseline after discontinuing the med. Oh, uh, and one patient felt great after taking SAGE and reported euphoria, which brings us to one of the more interesting conclusions that they make about <laughs> this drug, saying that it, quote, suggests that most patients... Uh, that in most patients, the effect of SAGE-217 on alleviation of depressive symptoms was not related to a temporary feeling of euphoria. What do we think about that conclusion? I mean, how, do they dis- how do they determine that? I, te- I mean, so they're trying to prove alleviation of depressive symptoms, but they're not trying to say that you had euphoria. Correct. Yeah. I mean... Can I get the drug that gives you the euphoria? I would like that one, please. And that would, the last thing that we need for any medication out there is addiction. Right. And I think, so I think the authors are obligated to talk about euphoria for fear that it could become addicted. So I I think that's why they pull this out and make it a big deal. But I also worry that they're like using everybody's subjective understanding of euphoria to be exactly the same. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, and what if people did feel great and they're like, I'm not telling them because I want more of that drug. Like, you know, like there are so many (laughs) other things that you have to be concerned about in saying that like, and making that broad sweeping generalization. Um, and so I think, the, you know, the, the phase three trial coming out of this will be really important. Yeah, uh, it's tough to, to wrap my head around them reporting something as subjective as euphoria. You know, when we're trying to uh, quantify these depression scales, there's validated interview tools that they're using, like this HAMD tool. Right. Um, which is not so when they're just reporting subjective symptoms. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's why the litany of adverse effects of drugs is so long, because... Right. This, you know, being on a novel drug leads to this sort of subjective feeling of problems. One one person's dizziness is another person's nausea. Yeah. It's interesting, too, to me that someone would use euphoria and and maybe, I mean, this is sad, but maybe they are just feeling good. You know, they have depression and now they feel better and they've described that as euphoria. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think... Um, uh, that's totally right. They're like actually feeling better and they're like, thank God. Yeah. This this feels amazing. (laughs) And they're like feeling normal, like, Mm -hmm. you know, another person's normal. It's, uh, it's, uh, I just found that conclusion to be really striking. Maybe they've decided to record a podcast with their best friends and they're feeling really euphoric. (laughs) I feel nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we're describing someone in this room, Sean. (laughs) I thought we were having a good time. Whatever. It's fine. I don't care. It's fine. Uh, so I, I do want to talk about the limitations as well. Uh, so other limitations that they, uh, some, some limitations that they list are a limited diversity in the trial, a small sample size. I, I think a small sample size is going to happen in a phase two trial. That's kind of, uh, you know, they're obligated to say it, but not really, um, Uh, bound by it they do uh, not adjust for multiplicity and unfortunately we don't have a a lot of time to talk about multiplicity on this episode and i i will certainly bring it up at another time because it's a really fascinating statistical um phenomenon that we do need to address Uh, and they do say that their power size was only uh enough to detect changes on day day 15 alone so Mm. um that does sort of limit some of the other um conclusions that we can draw from this. Um, I also want to point out the amazing accompanying editorial by uh, Dr. Emil uh, Kokoro from the University of Chicago. Um, So it discusses some more of these caveats. Uh, One is that this group, the the trial really didn't test treatment-resistant depression. So that was a key exclusion criteria from this study. And so we really don't know if it is a... um, 
amazing agent for these people who are not able to get relief from the standard of care uh, right now. At a certain point, this could be a first-line agent in certain people. Yeah, certainly for those for those treatment. And I think the problem with treatment-resistant depression is that you have to go through the hoops of trying the other first-line therapies mm-hmm. we have. Right. So I wonder, you know, in the, down the line, five, ten years from now, do we say let's start with Sage, see what happens, and like, is is it another first-line therapy along with SSRIs? It will be really interesting to see. Yeah, and if it's non-inferior then why would i start a patient on something that's going to take four weeks when i could give them something you know that within two weeks they feel better of course expense we have we won't even get into that but that will probably play a major role so the other um caveat that uh, dr cockerow brings up is that um previous phase two trials have looked really good for a non uh, maoi uh, neurotransmitters in the past, but they haven't borne out in later trials. So he brings up the the substance P trial uh, that looked really good in uh, phase one and two, and then uh, sort of tapered out later on. Uh, so um, I'll add another one that this was funded and written by the manufacturer, which always gives me a little bit of pause. Um, it, but I do think it's a promising start for Sage. Um, but yeah, we'll have to I wait mean, and see. All these manufacturers have to start somewhere. So you know, phase one and phase two. I'm excited. Yeah. I hope, I hope it, yeah, I, I hope it, I hope it bears out because this will give uh, a lot of people relief much sooner. Um, so any, anybody want to summarize? Ooh, can, can I summarize? Sure. Okay. So this is a novel antidepressant that works as a neuro steroid, uh, promoting, GABAergic receptors, promoting GABAergic receptors. It has a quicker action of onset than SSRIs. And it is, at least in phase one and phase two trials, safe and more efficacious than placebo. That's great. Amazing. And so I uh, just want to go back to our case a little bit. So for our uh, 28-year-old gentleman coming in with depression, already on uh, citalopram and um, going to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, I would say that it's a little bit early to use SAGE um, 217 for this patient because it truly he has what could be characterized as treatment-resistant depression right now. Um, so we would probably recommend either switching to a different SSRI or adding bupropion, which can be a nice um, adjuvant therapy. Um, All right. Any final thoughts? Let's get some phase three trials up in here. Let's do it. I'm excited to hear more about this. I'm formally requesting more phase three trials. This is exciting. Why, Ben, most important question of the day. Why is it called Sage 217? I have no idea. (laughs) I'm literally picturing someone around a campfire throwing and burning Sage. Is that similar or no like i'm literally picturing like and they're they're full of glee now they've yes, overcome like crippling very... uh depression to yes. uh i guarantee you and by guarantee you i mean this is a wild guess that it has it is an acronym for a long biochemical term probably probably or it's just right. a proprietary term or <laughs> someone was burning sage by a campfire like rachel said <laughs> that was awesome thank you ben all right thanks, thanks. ben Again, this has been an episode of the Med Lit Review. I want to thank all of you guys for listening to us. We appreciate you spending your time listening to us go through cases together. 
if you liked what you heard or you don't and you're feeling generous, just like, comment, subscribe. It helps us so much move the podcast forward. Thank you. Uh, a special shout out to Aaron Miller, who does all of our art, and Ryan Dickton, who helps us with some of the podcasting equipment. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And just a friendly reminder that all of what we say is our own opinions. This is not medical advice. And please refer to your own medical care provider for any questions. Bye. It's lit. Bye. Bye.